Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances Podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is your host, Ryan Rogers. You want to take it, Ryan? Yeah, so we're going to get into kind of day three of uh, the initial the initial push um, into Marja in the book here. And uh, this is going to be an excerpt from the book um, as we consolidate on night two. Okay. As the company consolidated on night two, the COC would remain in the original building from the night prior and the individual platoons would now be setting up their own battle positions. I'd given up one of my Marines for the company first sergeant's quartering party. This was a routine thing that everyone had to participate and I would love to have my boys back with me the following day or so. I chose Mini-Me and Simri. They left with radio batteries and other odds and ends. And the remainder of my squad and attachments were spread out in defensive posture, posted up and waiting for word from the top. After a short period of time, the key leaders were called to the lieutenant's position to discuss our options. We would arrive at the CP and I would be greeted with a fresh American Newport cigarette from Herbie. He was a key leader as well as he was a machine gun section leader. Sorry, machine gun squad leader. The LT commenced uh, to give our brief and after and, and, and debrief the after actions of the day's events. Gave each person a chance to speak on anything he might want to bring up. He was a truly an, an amazing leader. Hein brought up that he'd seen some large OE-style antennas coming out of a hardened-looking structure up by what appeared to be the land bridge and bazaar that was referenced in the op order. This became the primary concern of the conversation, and Hind had already posted men on watch to report back with any movement. With the primary objective tentatively identified, the plans were simple. We were to take a position under the cover of darkness, close to the objective. My squad was tasked with uh, moving out, clearing, and securing a building that was less than 300 meters from our current position and less than 300 meters from the objective side as well. After the table was slapped on the plan, I would stick. I was sick to my stomach. To this day, I'm not sure why. Maybe it was nerves. Maybe it was the thought of facing my squad, knowing I was just as scared, if not more scared than they were, and talking to them about what was to come next. I couldn't seem to get Bacola out of my head either, or his father. It was almost 45 days to the, to the day from when I shook that man's hand and he placed his son's life in my hands, and now he had a hole in his arm and I was and was removed from my control. One thing I took solace in was the last thing that B's father told him to do was kill him good, and that's exactly what he did. <clears throat> he got the hole in his arm patched up and I told him to post back up. Without hesitation, this man became a lion once more, threw this all up on the wall, and laid down hate and discontent. I told him to make him pay for the hole in his arm, and he did just that. Once I was back in my position, I called the team leaders and briefed them on the plan. I told Bennett he would be taking point and showed him the compound I wanted to take. We would be moving out in 30 mics, and the team leaders went to brief their men. Whenever I was speaking to my Marine, I felt I tried to show no fear. There were many times where I probably was more afraid than they were, but I tried to maintain a level head. 
Sometimes I could compose myself and sometimes I couldn't. Being that that day, that day three was coming and we were running low on food and water, it was hard to compose, uh, keep composure. The order started and we were to have the objective. In, the order stated that we were supposed to have our objective in 24 hours in the ground, uh, in the ground line of communication, which is our ground supply route, should be already open. And they weren't. The food supply was running low. I briefed the team leaders to eat what was necessary for energy only. I had been rationing my, my food since the onset, not because I'm some sort of saint, but literally because I couldn't eat. I couldn't eat or sleep to this point in the push. The little food I did force down made me nauseous. I gave out three of my main meals to boys who were out of food, and I told them they could eat after we secured the foothold. After the checks were good and everyone was ready, we began to echelon out from the current position. And so... At that point, you know, and it's not like it's the, um, I don't want I don't want to sound like I was weak and scared and shaking. Obviously that wasn't the case and you can attest to that, but you know, in your head when <clears throat> two days, okay, yeah, hard fighting, here we go. Boys are a little shook up, but we're faring pretty well. And it wasn't nerves like, oh, I'm scared. Um, oh, I'm scared to die every day, every second. But it was the fact of facing the squad saying, hey. It's time to lace up again, right. and again, and again, and again, and again. And, you know, after a while, it's like, you got real used to it. Like, okay, right, fuck it. This is what we're doing today. Suck it up, guys. I know it sucks, but we're doing it, and we're good at it. And um, and so, yeah, we kicked off. And so we secure the building for the night, you know, and, um, and then with the sun the next day, it's like it's time to – it's time to lace it up. <laughs> it's time to get it on. We were going to be doing a frontal assault and an action ride on two machine gun bunkers and a bazaar. And um, so, obviously, sleepless night. Uh, sun comes up. Well, it was cold. Yeah, cold. Very cold. Sleety. Uh, sleety, rainy. I don't remember the sleep, but I'll take your word for it. I wasn't in necessarily in my right mind right then. Yeah, well, I mean, cold. I'm not saying it was sleet and raining on us all night, but it was absolutely cold, and there was absolutely sleep falling uh, on that third on that what's that second night, second night or third night. It was definitely sleep falling. Second um, night, second yeah, third day, second night. Um, yeah. The did we get the water drop that night? No, because I specifically, that was a couple days later at the Alamo. I remember having pants for day three. Well, complete pants without rips in it. Oh, you're saying we did get the drop that We night. got something. I don't know. If so if it wasn't the drop, we at least found, found you some extra, some extra trousers. Well, I think Macwitz had some too, and we were like the happiest individuals on the face of the planet at that point. I'm yeah, pretty sure yeah. you couldn't break me at that point. Yeah, it's like brand new man. I got new <laughs> pants. Like, to hell with the socks. They're staying on the feet. I am definitely happy with the new pants. I know. That's right. So... So, yeah, so we're there, and the next morning it's going to be Bang City to take the actual objective. And um, we picked I picked this excerpt, excerpt out of the book and this lead-in out of the book because one of the, the most in, insane things ever happens. Um, oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Happens here, and we'll go back to the book right here so, uh, so people can get an idea. With the silence now now broken and hate in the air, I communicated with my squad that we needed to hit them hard and soften them up. We could advance to the waist-high wall and plant that we'd planned to fight from. I don't know how many machine guns were shooting at us from those two bunkers, but it seemed like four or more. Each bunker had six cat holes cut into them from, for firing platforms. 
They each had concrete T-ball barriers for roofs. They were they were way impressive, way more conventional than any of the houses in the entire area. As we tried to gain fire superiority, I remember thinking, this is crazy. Machine gun bunkers. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be in this type of fight. I was almost grateful that I hadn't missed it. As up until that point, we were perfect minus V's through and through. It was everything I wanted. Snaps back to reality. Rounds coming in close and we needed to press harder. My squad was on the north courtyard wall now firing into the bunker cat holes. And the battle space was erupting all around us and we weren't the only ones engaged. The other platoons were likewise in fights as the other... Uh, as as well as other attached snipers. After a short period of time where we weren't getting anywhere, so I took a uh, lol shoulder-fired rocket off of Corporal Charette's back and then secured my back blast area, ensuring I was about to, ensuring I was, a I was not about to rock someone standing behind me when I fired. I fired the rocket thinking I was going to, going to be a showstopper. The rocket hit directly where it was intended and exploded to the side of a huge cloud and, uh, of dust and sand in a massive boom. The enemy machine guns answered right back as if to say, fuck you, that was weak. Matt was not thrilled about carrying the rocket and not firing it, but time was pressing. And, um, yeah, so <laughs> here I think, all right, I'm going to bring out the big dog and get the law, fire the law, score a direct hit with the law, and 10 seconds later they bark right back out of the same holes. And it's like... Clearly, I didn't hit the cat hole. <laughs> because had I hit the cat hole, there was going to be no barking. Um, you had to have hit close to it. I mean, but it doesn't matter. Those, didn't, uh, didn't get the job done. And so... I think that mud might be some sort, some form of uh, alloy or something. <laughs> force field. Force field. No, the stuff was serious. Um, so, we fire in. I think it's going to be a showstopper. All it does is piss them off. They start hitting us harder. And uh, we get we have we take an A and A commander that was right with us getting ready to advance, and he gets shot right in the running lights. Uh, takes one right to the inside of the cheek, rocks him. Uh, they get you and Doc Fowler and some other guys get out there, get him back behind our wall, and then uh, you know Doc Doc uh, maybe Doc Fowler Doc Hernandez was working on him at this point. It was whichever Doc came out with me. I I want to say it was Hernandez. I think it was H. Yeah, I think but, it was H. Because we were because the whole platoon was right there. So, and yeah, I think Hernandez usually stayed with uh, with Big Whiskey. Yep. So I think that was uh, he was there with him. Yeah. And, so and I know it was Wetzel that came out there to the wall with me. Okay. So was, you and Wetzel helped get this this Afghan commander who's just been shot in the face. When he was shot, I seen his boots come up. He was hit hard. And uh, the crazy thing about that is Doc H would enough wherewithal and. Um, skill and remained calm enough that he patches this guy up yeah. and between that team that team that you were with you know, your team doc to bravo you guys were able to get a bird inbound and get that get that guy on a bird and he ends up coming back and fighting with us with a hole in his face you know some stupid short amount of time like a month later right right after being shot <clears throat> in the face and it came like in his cheek and blew out the back of his ear i thought for sure he was smoked and uh, sure enough, he shows back up, you know, with his little uh, scars and his and his badass first yeah. sergeant of the yeah. Kandak that carried an RPK. RPK, I was just going to say, that dude, dude was bad. Yeah, some of those guys, I mean, you want to talk about tough as woodpecker lips, man. These guys were, these guys were the real deal. <laughs> and uh, 
And so here we are. And I mean, things are going popping off. Six, seven machine guns, our machine guns, the whole battle space is erupting. And we had what was called ICOM chatter Marines with us. And these, these Marines were fluent in the local dialect of Pashtun Wali. And then they would be monitoring and intercepting these two-way radio. Unencrypted yeah. uh, Taliban communications. Correct. So they're, they're intercepting these and then relaying to us whatever they're picking up. Just, you know, just give us a heads up, the whole thing. So at one point, they, uh, they radio up and they tell us that, hey, you know, we don't know what this means, but they're saying they're about to release the big one. Right. And so that gets shuffled down the lines of, you know, everybody that was fighting that day. And there was everybody was fighting that day. So our whole company was right. I want to say that our command element was fighting that day as well in the back of us. Um, Actually, I think uh, I know they were with us originally, but once we started to push Captain Biggers was out on that wall that we went out and got that. I think he was the first one uh, off of. Yeah. When I got out there, everybody was in it. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, the, the fighting, the fighting was intense. Um, and the big one was, the big one was, uh, supposed to be inbound. Right. Um, I wanted to cover the part about the big one right here. Um, the other thing I'll say was when we got out to that wall for the uh, to grab the ANA mm -hmm. first sergeant, <clears throat> there wasn't a whole lot of cover left when we got out there, and the dude did not want to get on the stretcher. And I was like, well, I don't care if he wants to get on the stretcher, but he still has to go back to the rear. And there's not a whole lot of cover for me, Wetzel, and Doc to be out here messing around right now with two machine gun bunkers. Uh, Y'all are pretty much front and center for the machine gun bunkers at <laughs> this point. We need to get him out of here. Oh, he's going to run. Well, tell him to run his ass off and we'll beat him back there. Right. You know? And I don't remember putting him on the bird, but, I mean, somebody definitely put him on the bird because he was out of there. And that was who? That was that first sergeant. That uh, A&A first sergeant. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Yeah, I, know, and I know Big Whiskey called in the medevac on that one. Check. So, ICOM chatter marines come in. You know, whatever, 30 minutes, 40 minutes goes by. Everybody's like, well, what the fuck is the big one? Like, what are we going to do about the big one? We didn't know what the big one was. Yeah, I, mean, and we, I mean, honestly, we're operating on incomplete information. We don't even know if that was the right translation, but all we know is we're looking out for it. I mean, you could have been a seven-foot-tall <coughs> guy coming out the middle of with rockets. and Yeah, to this point, you know, to this point, we have no clue. We just know that they have a big one. We, we know that they've mentioned having something bigger than us. Right. Or what? something bigger than what they've thrown at us so far. But and in my mind, possible V-Bid. I mean, that, and, and that's, that's what it was everybody's mind. You know, because you know, we were right there by the, because the, the, there was an intersection, you know, an intersection running north right there. And the, uh, and then of course you had MEB Objective 2 right there on 608 and that runs, I mean, it could have come in from the left or the right at this point because we hadn't cleared up the, uh, the, the hill with the, with the radio tower, which is literally right there. So, Absolutely. I mean, V-bit is definitely what I was thinking for sure. That's what I was thinking for sure too. And as fate would have it, the big one would come. Yep. And it was not a V-bit. A, a D-bit maybe. 
you could you could call it what you want to call it. It ended up being nothing. But yeah. what we saw come around this corner and come hauling some serious ass right at us was this giant mule. And I know it sounds, you know, it could sound however it wants to sound. This mule stood tall, big mule. And the mule probably had five feet tall and three feet or four feet wide of some sort of contraption right. attached to him covered with a, a large blanket yep. and it looked as though the Taliban slapped him on his ass from, from back there behind where we couldn't see and said, get the Americans <clears throat> and here, here he come and this, this thing's running and whatever this contraption on his back is. There's I mean, he was basically packed like a Sherpa with, uh, with what we found out later was, was poppy stems. Right. But, <laughs> but at this time we're looking look at him. Huge. Well, we're looking at him come hauling ass around this corner and he's got this big contraption on his back and it's shaking side to side, but it's not falling off and he's running right at us. And like to this day, I don't think anybody knows Well, somebody knows. I don't know. But one of the Marines said, it's the big one. Yep. And so while we're laying into two mutually fortified machine gun bunkers onto the enemy confirmed firing at us, plus the remainder outliers that are not in those bunkers that are harassing and, 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 and just kind of supporting the machine gunners. Um, the entire platoon shifts off of those known enemies <laughs> and on to the big one, which dispatched it rather quickly. So not like the machine gun bunkers got that big of a break. On no, I mean, it was, uh, you know, a solid 10 to 15 to 20 seconds that the entire support by fire position reinforced shifted left and started laying into this donkey right or mule sorry and i mean i think i make mention in the book the toughest mule on the planet right uh ever he was taking 240 bursts small arms <laughs> multiple rounds were hitting him at a time and he would just trudge on man like he wasn't gonna stop and we were like it is the big one man <laughs> he's gonna kill everybody and so, you know, whatever, it felt like forever because of the danger that we felt like maybe went involved with it. Right. And the big one starts to go down. And like you said, it sucks. But at the end of the day, the big one had to go down that day, even though he only had, you know, whatever, 50 pounds of dried poppy stems on his back. Right. Well, and, you know, I was thinking about it. You, you know, I believe the Taliban would slap it on the ass and get it out of there. I mean, it's nothing else but other than for a distraction, yeah. What I think is, yeah, and that might have been their time to get... Skedaddled? Yeah, just leave their, their, their remain behind element to keep us busy while the rest of them get out of there. But what I think it was, because how they've got, like I said, they've got a couple of, couple of roads that, a couple of paths that Mule could have taken... How did they get it to run right down the bridge, right down the bridge and then come to where that road actually split our force. And I mean, but I think that donkey or that monkey, that mule was intended to come at us somehow. I think it was from our compound from the Alamo. Cause you remember we had, no, no, that was a donkey. No, no, no. This was no. a mule. I think that, that, that mule like lived at our compound, and then they pulled that was it his out of corral there or something. We got there, could be, and then they were like, "Oh yeah, we're going to use this tomorrow morning. <laughs> we're going to run this right at them." Yep. And think about that though, because like, let's say they did put fifty pounds of anal on them. Oh, I mean, I, and he got anywhere close, and they could detonate it. It would have been a, it would have been a serious serious problem, right? Um, so yeah, like as as funny or not funny as you may think it is, the entire 
you know, squad reinforced, you know, because we're getting ready to do an action right with the other two squads. They're about to go up and sweep in right, and take this thing down. But um, the big one goes down and not uh, – not a not a bad thing. We he went down. Everybody now feels safer. Everybody feels a whole lot better, and we are able to continue the operation. I remember at one point we were really laying into. I guess you could say each other. We hadn't taken any casualties yet, but we surely had dealt some out. And um, the law rocket didn't work. Just dusted the dusted the the bunker. Um, the fighting didn't subside. And I remember asking LT. I'm like, Yo, sir, what do we got that's bigger? You know, like, what else do we got? And uh, he had already been coordinating with choppers and in came some gunships. And, um, yeah, and so I was, you know, not like it was, I was unaware, but I wasn't thinking about the fact that they have the heads-up display system where the pilot can look and target what he's looking at, you know, regardless of which way the the Cobra is facing. And I remember being on the wall and we're leaning into him and we're getting some... I remember looking over and the Cobra is pointing like he's going to strafe our squad. Like he's coming in low and, but he looked over like this and that bottom gun said, <laughs> and then he started barking. Bah! And I remember like instantly for a second being paralyzed thinking, Oh, I hope he's not looking at us. Okay. We're good. Okay. We're good. And get back yeah. up there just cause that thing is scary. And I mean, what was he only a hundred feet, 200 feet above I mean, us? He was, he was hovering over us down there. Yeah. That was a pretty crazy one. Cause I it was wanna, insane. I want to say we might've got a couple casings from that, from the guy. Oh yeah. Dude, it was like a casing, casing shower over now. Not like falling directly on me or on, no, but on was, you, but on me Alamo yeah. on that whole, on that whole building and that whole, you know, that whole stretch right there, they would come in and just, that was, um, you want to talk about some support and we had some support there and, uh, and yeah, so, uh, that day is getting better and better. Big one goes down. We, we got massive amount of support in and, uh, and things are going great as the entire platoon and company. We're bringing American resolve to the fighters of Marja. And really laying into the machine gun bunkers, a lone mule came running full speed ahead like someone slapped him on the ass and said, Get the Americans! On this mule's back was some sort of contraption covered in a tarp or blanket. Whatever was under the tarp was about three foot high off the mule's back and wider than the mule itself. It was some crazy shit leaning into two machine gun bunkers knowing that there was enemies in there trying to kill you. Next thing you know, someone yells, It's the big one! The entire platoon reinforced all at once, turning its fires to the big one. With multiple machine guns and several small arms bearing down and unloading into the mule, it was not much of a match. But I will say that this, the amount of firepower he was hit with, he would definitely be considered for one of the toughest mules in the world. I felt bad for the animal in hindsight as the contraption on his back was nothing more than a large load of dried up poppy. So that that's the part in the book where we talk about the mule and maybe like possibly one of the craziest um one of the craziest instances uh just for something you wouldn't think about maybe happening you it, know it's amazing what you will believe right. in your mind when people are trying to kill you if somebody says hey that donkey's gonna come kill you <laughs> check right if, i believe you wholeheartedly if it had been a white van that came around the corner and then exploded we really wouldn't have been surprised. I've been like, well, yeah, that, that's the no, big one. No you know? doubt about it. The but same then, call would have went out. It would yeah. have been the big one, and we would have shifted fires. But And it would have been like, yeah, we had a V-Bid come in, blah, 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 blah. Crazy. This one's like, 
I got a story for you. Like, yeah, you ever I, fought a donkey? Yeah, right. You ever I'm fought a mule? Yeah. <laughs> That's why it sticks out in everybody's mind. Right. You know? And so, boom, we secure our, we secure our objective that day. Yeah. Um, you'd have to read the book for more of the infighting, and there's a lot more that goes into it. The big one goes down. There's fighting for almost the remainder of the day. And uh, at that point, you were right. We did have the chow wagon come in that night, um, that first night at the Alamo, and drop food and water. Okay. And that's probably where you got your frog pants and things of that nature. And then the following day, we cleared the objective, and it would have been first and third that made their way down and secured the gas station and the large house we ended up living out of um, yeah. Yeah, after we could move the remainder of the water. Right, yeah. Um, down there. The, uh, the plan was not to stay at the Alamo or have a, a squad at the Alamo, but it was uh, out of necessity since we couldn't leave the water for sure. Right. But it ended up working out a day or two later. So Right, right. Right, and so it worked out well. We we got our water. We got, you know, we can fast forward a little bit. Because, um, I mean, we really, we kind of consolidated and kind of... Yeah, there kind was a because we had time, our objective at that point. You know? Absolutely, it was time to breathe. There was time to you know take a minute, and um, it's not that the fighting stopped, but it, it drastically slowed down. Yeah. We prepared for a counterattack. We built posts down there in the bazaar where we were living. Um, Fortified, raided the bar- bazaars to eat because when the chow and water choppers came in for emergency resupply. They started taking fire and they were only able to get the water off yep. initially. And so still hungry, still, you know, doing our thing. We're doing okay. We're faring okay. I don't want to make it seem like we're, you know, in bad, bad shape, but definitely worse than what we thought, yeah. you know, as far as fighting went already down, a, you know, guy got sick guys in the squad. Um, now we got a mule rotten outside the bazaar yeah. where, to stink. yeah, where, uh, where we laid waste to him, you know, a couple of days before the smells getting stinchy, you know, it's just war, right? It's combat. It's, it's all, all about it. And so, um, this was like, uh, where my soul started to get sucked out of my, sucked out of my being. Um, because we went a hundred miles an hour for, you know, the first two, three weeks, um, two, three days. No, I mean, it was the first two or three weeks. Oh, okay. This was the first two or three days. But as we consolidated, there was still some some fighting. Um, this was something like the – this was like the 15th. We had some heavy resistance, 16th, heavy resistance. The 17th, we lose Courier. Yeah. Um, our squad goes to reinforce Courier that day uh, with his – or uh, Lieutenant Neff with his guys, and they got ambushed in the open step, crossing to go, go get batteries and uh, – enemy machine gun takes down a whole team and uh that was a crazy morning we were at the alamo still because we hadn't got all the water down to our firm base and i just remember hearing over the radio uh black gear right unencrypted squad internal comms comes up and and they're crackling uh and they're saying hey we need help we got guys down and i remember thinking you know we weren't that far from them less than a clip like right around eight nine hundred meters from where their position was and nobody when the sun came up got hit and we're just kind of sitting around thinking, you know, by now they've had their chai and right. they're yeah, laying yeah. into us. Because yeah. you it was just weird. Your watch by that, oh, that point. Absolutely. In Marja, it was like morning call to prayer, give them 30 minutes to drink their tea and get their, their weapons get and their mags topped off, and then they're they're coming to bang. And so it was just kind of like one of those eerie mornings, like 
the hell's going on? Like, where you at? Right. You know, like we're here. And, uh, and yeah, then, then fire erupted to the south of us, back behind us. And it was Neff's guys opening that, opening that stuff. Uh, courier goes down. Tim Smith, a buddy of mine that came from three, two gets the top of his forearm blown off by, by a couple of the rounds in the burst. Horn, Horn took one in the wrist. Horn took one in the wrist. Yep. And so you had instantly a bad situation. So I'm, I'm sitting in, uh, I'm sitting in the Alamo on kind of like on radio watch when I hear all this stuff start popping off. And I remember, you know, we got right in simmering over with the quartering party and who knows where they're at at this point. And I just know that I got Marines out there. So it's like, Hey, we got to go help these guys. And, uh, and that's what we did. So we got over there, we helped these guys out. Um, they, they were in a horrible ambush. They got caught in the open, lost the whole team instantly. Um, one KIA, two WIA out of the team. And I, I remember making the run over there, something like 900 meters. Me and Wetzel are sprinting. Uh, the rest of the guys trying to catch up to us. Um, uh, me and big whiskey, whiskey were, uh, Tailing Charlie, bringing up the rear, making sure no one's trying to squirt, you know, and then we left Bennett, us. I think, with a Red Star cluster and a wish and said, hey, man, if things go bad, fire this up and we'll ping pong back over to you. Right. Um, and uh, and that's what we did, man. We got over there. We, we, we relieved some pressure off of Laney's squad. And, um, yeah, I remember coming in and their squad was green. Yeah. A lot of shock. And, um and I'm, it, it was bad. I mean, it was, they were, they were in bad shape and they had just put Kurt, you know, brought, brought courier in and he was expired. And then, um, he looked good. He was in good shape for, for, yeah, for, for, for the events that took place. And, um, got Laney, uh, Tim Smith came up to me and showed me his arm and I'm like, Oh my God, dude, are you okay? You know, they were, they were still fighting. You guys had already started putting people in posts I had dropped off a couple of the guys on the way in. I think Knuckles was set in watching. I mean, we set a whole perimeter with with our guys around their perimeter. Um, and uh, then when Big Whiskey and you guys pulled, pulled in, sealed up the back door. And All right, guys, as you can see, we uh, picked up this, uh, this recording at a different location, and we're actually on location at our sponsor site, Mr. Uh, Mr. Harlan with the Louisiana Gun Shop, and then we're going to have him on in a future episode, talking about what he offers, uh, what licenses, what licenses he can clear you for, what certifications he can give you, because it's not just concealed. But here in the gun shop, so we're going to kick right back into the episode, going back to the book now, um, where we left off. We were talking about um, the attack on First Platoon and Sergeant Laney Squad, Sergeant Laney Squad, um, and so we're just kind of build that up from the book, and then we'll get back into it. Shortly after sunrise, the air began to crackle to our south where third was located. I laced up and got my gear close by. I had the feeling that things were going sideways from the frantic sounds of broken transmissions coming through the XTF flag gear. I, uh, I couldn't make it. I couldn't make out much, but what I did notice is that the enemy fire was going ballistic. It sounded like multiple machine guns and possibly RPGs, depending on who was firing them. Maybe Neff had ANA with rockets as well. Over the black gear, <clears throat> there were calls from third that they had men down and they had no encrypted comms to call for support assets. Knowing that I had Marines with the unit and knowing that we were the closest element capable of reaching them with enough combat power to aid relief, I yelled over to Staff Sergeant Wright that I was going for them. He told me to hang on a minute as he needed to get clearance from LT, and I laced up and grabbed 
Uh, he told me to hang, hang on a minute as he needed to get clearance from LT. I laced up and grabbed Knuckles, Charette, Sadiq, and Earmuffs, our a, &A RPG gunner. We called him Earmuffs because he always wore these tricolor camo earmuffs no matter what the temperature. I told Staff right I was going to push. He instructed me again to hold on. The LT was not happy about having my guy, my guys in a fight with no resources. was was uh, too much for me. I grabbed the radio and asked Staff Sergeant if he was coming with me or charging me. He wasn't happy either, and he said, I'll bring up the rear. I nodded and pushed to the southwest wall near Grimes' post. I gave him a red star cluster and told him to start getting, if he started getting attacked, to pop it off and hold for reinforcements. We were going to help third. Over the radio, the, radio the crackling transmission sounded like they were multiple Marines down, one KIA. This was bad, I thought. Pushed out the southeast exit and into a sprint. Lance Corporal Wetzel accompanied me as we echeloned out in pairs. We ran the entire way. The gunfight... Getting the gunfire getting louder and louder as we closed. I was in great shape, but my lungs were burning as we ran through the cold air. Soon we'd be coming up on the northeast edge of the massive buildings, I believe to be 3rd Platoon's location. We were about 300 yards out now, and I stopped for a break to try to contact 3rd. We need a connecting file uh, for you guys to guide us through the area. Uh, we don't know where the enemy was even firing from, and we needed to wait for the rest of our element to close the gap, most of whom were now slowed to a walk. Only seconds had gone, gone by, and the connecting file popped out of the back of the compound to the, uh, from the south and waved us in. Staff Sergeant Wright was way behind, uh, but we left Marines to walk. But we left Marines out there to walk them in, as we had a good squad communication now. If he was turned around, he would have eyes on him anyway and have multiple AMA and Marines, uh, a Marine or two with him. When I walked to the courtyard for the first time, I saw the entire platoon gazing around, staring off into space. My buddy from 3-2, Tim Smith, was shot in the initial contact and it tore the entire top of his forearm off. I remember coming into the compound and seeing him after Lieutenant Neff com uh, was completely green. Physically, they were in a bit of shock, and they were literally green in the face. A few Marines from 3rd were on post, but not acting effectively. <clears throat> they were just chilling, not returning fire to the enemy or taking proactive measures. I grabbed my first three Marines close by and I started to move through the interconnected compounds. I placed Knuckles with his saw in the northeast corner just outside the courtyard to watch our six. Then I dropped over I then dropped over a compound and set up a machine gun post with Sadiq by knocking a portion of the mud hut wall out with buttstocks of the weapons. He set in and started to fire on one confirmed enemy position, instantly achieving hits and shutting the enemy gun down. Next, I went back to the firm site and observed the rest of Staff Sergeant of Sergeant Laney's guys began to come back to life. He too was now getting guns and taking them into the fight to the enemy. Staff Sergeant Wright was now coordinating a link up with air to evacuate our dead and wounded. He was always the calmest person on the battlefield. I tried to emulate that. I ran back to the compound to pay my respects to PFC Courier who was hit by bullets of a machine gun burst. He was laying on a big pile of feed and fertilizer covered up with someone else's poncho liner. I remember thinking how, how all the faces of the dead always seemed to be so at peace. Courier is one of the new guys that we picked up from SOI and checked in while we were on pre-deployment leave. I knelt beside him, pulled the poncho liner off his body. He looked at peace. He looked like a hero. He was in good shape for the number of times he had been hit. I said a short prayer and thanked him for his sacrifice and apologized that he'd been called up too soon. I covered back, covered him back up and proceeded out of the courtyard and back to work. And that kind of leads up and kind of gets you to where we are in the conversation already. Um, like I said, Staff Sergeant Wright, calm as hell, you know, gets back on the hook and just starts doing work. 
kind of gives me the nod like I got this, go go get some, you know. And um, that that was a, I guess that was the the day that we learned that we weren't invincible anymore. Which, um, well, we had already gotten a taste of that with the uh, with Vicolo, but not to that extent. Not to that extent, yeah. And a couple lessons learned just from that time. I remember running in the courtyard and seeing that, um, seeing my buddy Tim jacked up, pat on his arm. He kind of took it off, showed me. I'm like, oh my god, it was nasty. It was, uh, yeah, it was like the whole top of his forearm was was just shredded off. And uh, he said, "Yo, dog, I'm super thirsty." And I'm like, oh, I got you. Not thinking about it. He's going to be, you know, in the freedom bird in about 10 minutes, eating ice cream at Leatherneck, you know, chilling. Or uh, uh, back in Germany on the way. You e- know. Either way, whatever happened to him, I know he's going to a place with goodies, and, and I'm going to be stuck in the desert. And I wasn't thinking about that. And this dude sucked my entire two liters dry, which yeah, I'm sure he had cotton mouth, and he was shot, and the nerves and everything. Problem is, he got on the bird and flew away, and I was still in a fight for the next five hours, or week, and uh, or four hours, however long it took. Um, yeah, and so uh, <laughs> my little uh, my little message out there to you guys is: if you're in a gunfight and uh, somebody gets wounded, don't let them drink all your water because they got plenty of water where they're going, and uh, and you don't. So, so you know that happened, and I I uh, I moved back to Knuckles. I moved back to Knuckles' area, which uh, he was covering that six, that north, six o'clock, kind of where we were coming from. And there was uh, the old red and white radio tower up there yep. that, um, assumingly, like the Brits or somebody built during during some time over there because it's red and white, beautiful technology. It was coming up out of there. It had uh, buildings at the bottom, cased in walls. Yeah, yeah, and so. Um, when I came up to Knuckles, he said, I said, what are you doing so far back? I told you, like, you're not, you can't cover anything until it gets to you here. He's like, sniper out there, son. I'm like, sniper. I peek my head out and shwap Round hits the, uh, within seconds, round hits the wall right beside my head. And I come back in, I'm like, no, yeah, you ain't lying. There's a sniper out there. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, he ended up being up in that radio tower. And I want to say that, I want to say that Cobra shot him. But I can't, I, I can't recall exactly how it went down. Uh, I know that he was mitigated in the future, though. Yeah. Um, Wasn't short, it in Chechen? short order. Huh? Wasn't it supposed to be a Chechen or something like that? Mm. I think that's what they said, uh, Chechen with a dragon off, yeah. um, which makes sense. An 800-yard shot that, with a 15-mile-an-hour crosswind, and he misses by a couple inches from probably a 100-foot elevation. I mean, a hell of a shot even to miss. Yeah, he's pretty good. <clears throat> anyway, uh, that happened. So I'm like, all right, Knuckles, you can stay right here. I think you're right. You know, maybe it comes through that door, cut him in half. Good know. call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good call. And, uh, another lesson learned. Lance Corporal tells you there's a sniper out there. Just trust him. Just trust him. All right, Roger. Because two inches to the right, and that was going to peel my whole face in. Right. Um, or throat, which would have been horrible. Yeah, good thing was there was a bird coming in for you. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a fact. So... Uh, from there, you know, the bird came in and picked up the dead and wounded. We were still banging, um, getting after it. And uh, I remember one of the, def- I don't know if you say defining, but one of the moments that was kind of wild in that uh, exchange was when well, I had a guy break down, you know, and uh, young guy, Wetzel, uh, point man, you know, first deployment in uh, 
I think just seeing Courier, just seeing one of, you know, somebody with U.S. Marines on their bad, you know, on their on their, on their front nameplate, uh, wrote it up like that was uh, just more, I guess, more at the time than he could really grasp. Um, and, and he started to break down. I remember, you know, uh, two Bravo grabbed him up, started really getting in his face, like, you know, hey, we got, you know, we got a war to win. And, and so, like, there's, of, of course, there's guys and there's situations where that's necessary. I knew Wetzel enough to know that this was not that situation. This, that's not what he needed. Right. And so I just, you know, tactfully, hey, Steph's arm's mine. I got this. You know, turn loose, you know. And uh, I just told, I was very calmly said, hey, man, people are dead and people are dying. And you can't engage with water in your eyes through an RCO. So I need you to dry your eyes up if you don't want any more people laying on fertilizer bags today. And he dried up and carried on and did fine after that. But he had that moment, you know, where everything became real and uh, probably started contemplating his own fate, you know, right? got in his head about it. And um, the big thing to tell guys, we were talking about this earlier in the shop, is uh, that's normal behavior. I'm not going to say that the tears and stuff is normal behavior. But all those feelings, some guys tears, some guys sick stomachs, some guys uh, extreme exhaustion. Um, and that day was just a little much for him. And, you know, he had a moment. But uh, after his moment, we got back after it. And we still had contact to the south down towards Kathy. And uh, I wouldn't know. Yeah, we had we had contact down towards Kathy still for sure. And, uh so we started to echelon kind of out of that, you know, uh, Laney squad started echelon towards the CP to get those batteries that they were after and the different things. And, uh, and then we started echelon back to the Alamo and, um, and yeah, I, I mean, it lasted several hours, but I, I remember also on the way back, I kept hearing these shots, bang, bang, bang. And I'm like, why is go I turn around and it's uh, two Bravo. He's like hoisted up on a wall. Bang! He's like, it's gonna take me 15 shots to get this range, but I'm gonna get these bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I don't know that he ever hit anybody from there, and it's very well he may have. But we were echeloning back at that point, and he was just kind of trying to take some last uh, parting shots, if you will, trying to keep them stifled in the back. Because a lot of times, like we figured out later, that they would wait for us to echelon away from them. And then amass forces and Return start to hit us. And that's when they hit us. And they would hit us on the RTB. Yeah. So, um, crazy day. Um, we're echelon back with no problems. We get back. And again, I, you know, I think Wetzel had some talks. A couple, <clears throat> a couple of the other younger guys just had to tell him, hey, like, this is, you can do everything right in this game and people will still die. It's the, so real, let's, it's the real deal. Yeah. So let's mitigate our errors to not have unneeded deaths and let's keep our emotions in check at least until we get back to a place of semi-security and then you can have your moment have your moment it's okay to have your moment i mean i talked about it before that i had my moment when hansen passed yep or did we not i might uh, not have talked talked in depth about that yet. anyway but, mm -hmm. you might but, have mentioned it um uh, but we'll get to it we're going to cover that a little bit more in depth as well but um yeah so courier goes down and we you know, really, it just becomes um, real for everybody. And we were humbled and uh, and no longer invincible, and we knew it, you know, as far as death was concerned, at least. And um, and so we carry on with that. We get back to the Alamo. 
spread load, uh, you know, ammo, make sure everybody's good. Yeah, because we were still surrounded at that point. Oh, 100%. I don't even think they had gotten the trucks to push through. From no, Lima was still Lima. taking, yeah, I mean, they didn't get through storm. until a week later almost, so at least three yeah. or four days later. Yeah, they didn't break through till. well, no, that's not true either. Yeah, well, they broke, after they Hansen, broke, but it wasn't. They broke through before Hanson, but after the radio tower yeah. mission. So, yeah, so contentious uh, emotions, things, uh, things going wrong for the first time, I would say, um, or things not going wrong, but definitely bad things happening for right. the first time. And uh, we're, we're in the 18th, so we're in five days, and we lose Courier. Uh, we lose Timbo Smith for the remainder of the deployment because and his Horn. wounds were too bad. Horn was was down. And then, um, and third just really shook up, man. I, uh, I remember, you know, their leadership. I remember Lieutenant Neff. I remember uh, Sergeant Laney. And, and yeah, there's just no blame for that. You just had a single burst take out your whole front team, right? Which requires the rest of your squad to carry them all back over 200 meters while being shot back at where you through just the open. From. Yeah, to get to a building that you now you're shook, right? And um, just a desperate situation there. Uh, it's the first time I've ever seen a human being really turn green. And, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, it was a crazy day. I remember going back and, uh, and just thinking, what the fuck just happened? Like, what? And we, we got some guys. I'm not going to say we didn't get any, but they got ours. Oh, yeah. and, and that was a fucking problem. And so um, hate, discontent, animosity building. And we haven't even pushed through our. Well, I mean, we've pushed through our objective with the with the first two squads, and they're down holding those uh, those buildings, waiting on us to arrive. But you know, we still got ten thousand bottles of water back at the island right. that we're trying to shuffle to different platoons, and um, yeah, so it just became it became stupid. It became stupid. So we get back, and uh, the water needs to get shuffled down to our forever home as far as we know and so that became second squad yeah. uh, filling tarps and poncho liners up and then carrying thousands of bottles of water what a click not a click maybe half a click I don't even know it was like two three hundred meters up to the land bridge and then you figure two or two hundred meters or so through the through the, the bazaar to the end of the bazaar yeah so well you remember we had Opie or K-Bar K-Bar yeah so <laughs> Woundy had had uh, come back, <laughs> Wounded Goal, the uh, ANA partner, squad leader. He comes comes back. Same guy that cooked the rooster at the at the Alamo, uh, the one night. And he comes back and uh, Sergeant Rogers, uh, donkey carry water. And I'm like, do tell, <laughs> say more, tell me what you think. And he like, remember that thing? He like found yeah. or some wood, and he like made like a cross saddle load bearing structure on this little animal's back and then we loaded that bitch down that donkey was carrying hundreds and hundreds of bottles of water at the same time each trip and uh sure enough Wendy got this little donkey and you know Wendy's what all of all, all of about five two and he's got eyeliner on for war paint and makeup for war paint his his damn gun was bedazzled with like clear cellophane and jingle beads I'm pretty paper sure. and jingle beads yeah and here he is out there with like a little switch of uh poppy stem slapping yeah. this little donkey on the ass telling him to get moving carrying all of them waters 
to and then back I think and you forward. rode it back to the Alamo a couple times. I got a picture of him yeah. riding up to the That's Alamo right. on the donkey. It was like it was his fucking weapon slung and everything. I'm like, only only in Afghanistan. Never did I think that I would witness this kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, so K Bar helps us shuffle the rest of the water down to the Alamo, and then finally, after a period of days of shuffling water. Finally, we broke it down. Yeah, we make it down there. I remember the first trip we took down there, you were with me, and it was like basically the whole squad, minus like three or four post standers and two Bravo, stayed back, <laughs> right? And um, and as we come up, I remember Herbie being there, and he had that big, yeah. huge wooden yep. bowl, and we hadn't eaten in a couple of days, at least me and you, because we had eaten what we had eaten and then gave the rest of our food out. I know I gave two or three main meals out that were stripped to, to some of the guys. The bottom of the of the bag. Mm. In case I had oh, one, the chicken star or the star kids tuna or whatever. Yep, yeah. I had that just in the bottom of the bag. Just hey, we might need that here in a bit. Emergency so, rations. So just leave that where it's at. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So it became stupid. But I remember when we got down there, um, Herbie came up. Hey, get your squad. Follow me. And they had uh, raided the bazaar there and got a bunch of rotten potatoes and cut out as much of the rot as they could and still salvaged food. They got a bunch of eggs, uh, chicken eggs that were just laying everywhere inside that one. Rice. Yep, and some rice and actual chickens. And they butchered them and, and then started a fire uh, and cooked this up, some scrambled eggs, potatoes, and chicken and rice. And I remember it was like the best meal. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure we all got dysentery from it, like certain, 100% certain. Uh and that's probably from the water that Wendy boiled the shit in. But um, not like we didn't have so much water in bottles of water, but ten thousand of them. Yeah, they they like to use that to wash their feet, not uh yeah, not their food, not their food. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so I'm, I just remember him giving us that food, and everybody was like hands going into these eggs and potatoes, and just like. And after that, it was like, let's fight. Let that. We're ready. We're good. And there was no fight. Yeah, there's nothing. Walking back to get more water. <laughs> but we had energy. Um, and so we got all the water down after, you know, a number of days of traveling back and forth and back and forth. And then finally, we all consolidated down at our uh, <clears throat> at our compound that we would yeah, be living in, at least the until the, the street. Yep, we had a gas station and then master bomb maker's house or a parent assumed bomb maker's house. Um, and it was nicer than the other compounds for sure. And had a two-story. It had uh, multiple compounds in our side because Hind Squad stayed on the left. We stayed on the right. And then JT Squad stayed over in the um, gas station with LT. And, uh, yeah, so and now we're here. And now it's like now we got to wait for Lima Company to show up to open the Glock, the ground line of communication, get us our packs, get us mail, open up the, the Glock so that engineers can come through, roll through, and make us a cop to live out of because we're living right. on an like, infected hut. <laughs> you know, uh, I never minded living in the mud. I'm not going to so. say I minded it until the day that I seen how much shit we were breathing through through the wow. air. And I'm like, mm, that can't be good. Yeah, but that's just, that's just the place. Yeah, that's small problems at that point, to be honest. Um so you yeah, want, so you want small particles of dust or larger particles of lead, which one you yeah, yeah, choose? Yeah, I'll take the dust for now. <laughs> um, 
later in that deployment, I might have told you I'd take the lift. Right. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, I mean, there's always that ice cream if it's a lucky wound. That's right. Give me a through and through, baby. No, no I'm just joking. No, I would have hated that. Yeah, for I sure. too. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, just very, uh, very wild opening to a deployment. And, um, and I'm going to say, like, everybody did their job good. Everybody, uh, staff sergeant got birds in and got guys out of there. And, uh, and we took the fight to the enemy along with, uh, Sergeant Laney's squad mm-hmm. and Lieutenant Neff's, you know, guys really got after them. And, um, it, as bad as the day was, it could have been worse. Uh, so we try to find the good in that, the calm on the battlefield, um, after action and debrief that with the junior guys that, you know, struggled with some of that stuff in the hut that night. And, kind of just moved on from there. And, and and that's something that a lot of people don't understand is we don't get a proper goodbye to our friends. Um, we don't get to see the funeral. We don't get to go to the celebration of life and tell all the crazy stories about them and all the wild things that they used to do and um, and celebrate. What we get is a, you know, a chopper scoops them up and then they take them away and then we come home to a memorial, you know, mm-hmm. at best. Um and so that's effectively the last time that we see our friends is them pulling away in a chopper, bloodied up. And, and uh, in my opinion, most people don't think about that. Right. Think, you know, you don't get the closure that you would get with somebody at home. And so, uh, and that becomes hard. And it just becomes one of those things that you have to put in the back of your head. You have to compartmentalize and say, okay, that happened. And I can't think about that for the next eight months. So, yes, it happened. I don't want to talk about it no more. I don't want to think about it. Yeah, so um, obviously from my perspective is, is going to be completely different from your your perspective, and that's one of the great things about having you on for this review and doing this uh, the, the review together and, and the podcast together is, um, you know, when I talk to you about your experiences, you experience things even though you might have been shoulder to shoulder with me, your experiences of that war in, in general were uh, completely different than mine. And the next guy next to you seemed completely different than you. And so, like, what's your take on, let's say, start that morning um, from the time that we started hearing the rounds popping off at third up through, you know, getting back to the Alamo? Um, I guess. I just remember I heard someone say, "Hey, we're going." I don't remember. I don't even remember what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Walking around checking post. I don't know. Might have been trying to. I don't know. Do something. And uh, yeah, with it, we're going. All right, let's go. And I took up tail end Charlie with Staz arm, and we rolled. And I remember that uh, it was so cold all the time, and that was the first time that I felt like I had gotten warm. The entire time we had been there, and I'm wearing my green sweatshirt underneath my flag. And when we made that run, I was like, Stazarn, I'm I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> this is not a good situation." Um, me and Stazarn bring in Taylor and Charlie. We enter the building. We enter the compound where y'all came in. Stazarn sees, you know, one KIA, two WIA. Said, "Charette, get on in. Get on the casualties help top." Because I'm a combat. I was a combat lightsaber, so. Time to save some lives. I want to go help y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, Doc pretty much had the situation under, under under control by the time we got there. Yeah, and but, they had a corpsman with him, too, because I remember yeah. Timbo was already patched up on his arm, and he had to even take the bandage down to show me the wound. 
and well, take all of the bandage down. It was his whole arm, basically. Right. And Horn's Horn's wound was similar to his. I don't know how you get one guy who who just gets it completely, meaning courier, and then Timbo and Sure, you didn't even think about the cone of fire. True. But um, one was in it and two were out to the sides. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I think Horn was actually the, the point man of that team, too. Yeah. I don't think Courier was. I think Courier was the saw gunner, but they're not. quite certain that Tim Smith, as a corporal, was leading that he team. He was the team. You know, yeah, he was the team leader. And so he lost, what, him and two other of his team. Right. So there was only one guy left of that team, if it was a full team at the time. Right. Yeah, the other guy might have been pushed out the company for uh, yeah, whatever you call that damn thing. Quartering party. Quartering party. And uh, so I just sat there. I had, no, I had known Horn because he was from around the same area I grew up. Right. And uh said, Horn, you going into shock right now or uh, what's going on? He's like, uh, Corporal. I was like, yeah, you're going into shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drink this. Uh, put your feet up in the air, please. <laughs> yes. Elevate those boots. And uh, went, took a look at Carrier. You know, and then the uh, call came out for the bird to come in. Grabbed one by the... Uh, by the carrying strap of his flak jacket and ran him out there and then dust off, got off, and he was like, here, y'all ordered this and threw me a stretcher. And I was no, like, he did. it was for courier. And I was yeah. like, we don't need this anymore. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, y'all ordered it, so y'all got to take it. And I remember rounds popping by us, hitting. Hey, I'm okay taking a stretcher back, especially pulled. I don't think that was pulled. It was pulled, wasn't it? It was pulled. Yeah, it was, an old, it was a fold out pulled. Yeah. And uh, I said, we don't want it. Because we, I didn't want to carry it, so. Uh, no, yeah, all good. So, yeah, um, grab the stretcher, finally, and uh, off they went. Yeah, off they went, and pretty much broke down from there. I think I tried to get out to y'all, but I think I tried to turn a corner and then couldn't figure out where the hell y'all were at. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I know you made it to us at one point. I mean, there was a lot that went on that day. While you were while you were back there, um, we were taking fire from Salimi's house, which was directly right. to like to the west of us, and um, might have been. I think it was west. Anyway, it doesn't matter. There there were people all over his house, and I remember um, I was working up a mortar mission when Staff Sergeant finally peeled out of your guys' situation and came into ours and. And then uh, two Bravo being crazy, just trying to draw fire from the enemy so we can get better better rounds on target. Me and him were actually arguing about who was going to draw fire, and uh, it came down to stay the fuck right here. I'm doing it. You don't have an option. You're married. Shut up. And so he went out and drew the fire, and then you know we dropped some mortars on that compound, which kind of stifled the fight. Uh, I don't know why either we killed them or they got scared and ran or they got scared and boogied out yeah because they stopped shooting at us for sure and uh and then you know broke down from there and headed back to the alamo but the other thing i remember about the alamo when we were breaking it down with the water was um do you remember when first art came yeah i was like what do y'all need marines and they're like sleeping bags yeah. We need the our stuff. Our we need our main. Yeah, somebody like, brought up mail. No, he brought up mail. Yeah. He was like, "Oh no, we're gonna get y'all some mail." 
I'm like, no, we want our sleeping bag. I don't have a sleeping bag or warming layers in my mail. <laughs> there better be newspaper in that because I'm definitely stuffing that in my clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that got, uh, that got silly. So, yeah, so uh, just kind of wrap this one up. I think we'll leave it at the Alamo there and then pick up. I think we got um, we got a good episode with Grimes coming up and get his perspective on uh, the loss of the first couple of Marines, uh, one of them being Matt Hanson, which was his roommate and his best friend. And, um, you know, one notable thing is, you know, you see how Wetzel, let's say, and it's not to pick on him, but you see how he handled the situation. And then you go to Grimes, who is the same peer group, came in at the same time, same seniority, same rank, same everything, same life, basically. I mean, obviously, their growing up in room was a bit different, but their entire Marine Corps life was the same. And uh, to see Wetzel not be able to compartmentalize it and really tear into him, and to see Grimes go to this place of oblivion, like, nah, whatever, and it's like, this is your roommate. Right. And, uh, so the psychology of death in a combat zone is funny. Um, not funny that people are dying, but it's just funny to see the way it works. The the, the amount of different reactions you may have to the same exact incident, uh, right? With different folks. So, and and again, that's another thing to stress is that these things are normal. It, um, if you feel bad, it's normal. If you feel completely detached, normal. And I say normal because everybody goes through it in a different way, but it always ends up somehow the same. If it doesn't fuck with you right then, it'll probably fuck with you later that night when you're trying to go to sleep. If it doesn't do it then, it'll probably fuck with you when you get home. And at some point, you're going to have feelings and emotions about this stuff. Um, one of the goals for this podcast uh, in general is just to say, hey, that's okay, first of all. Uh, this is normal. And there's no reason to let this situation define the rest of your life. And, uh, and so that's what we mean to do is to show people that said, nope, I'm not going to let it define my life and I'm going to live my life and I'm still, still going to grind it out. I'm still going to use the core principles that I learned from my organization, whether that be the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy, you know, the Air Force or the Guardsmen. You learn those uh, core principles and those uh, attributes good to a leader and good to a service member in whatever rank and file you're in. And then... It seems to me that the successful guys hold on to those, and some of the some of the lost guys, uh, I wouldn't even call them unsuccessful. I call them stuck. They get stuck in their mind, thinking about this stuff or not doing proper counseling, and uh, and then you pay for it if you do that. And um, if you don't do that though, you can still live a happy, successful life. And sure, are you gonna be sad sometimes? Yep. You're going to be sad. Are you going to be angry at the world sometimes? Yep, you're going to be angry. Um, but the worst thing you could do is get out, let that let that moment, that one finite moment in time, um, define the rest of your being. And uh, and a lot of times, what at least what I've seen is the guys that are affected the most by this stuff are guys that get out and have no purpose. Yep, no mission. Now you're sitting around purposeless and uh, whether you're retired or you were forced out or you just decided to get out, you're still sitting around thinking about being in and thinking about that being the only purpose of your life. And now what? Like war doesn't transition to the civilian world is what a lot of guys say, but it's not true in my opinion. 
took me a while to figure it out, but there's a lot of things that we, I did in war, you did in war, that absolutely you, retor- you resort back to in your daily life. Absolutely. Like, like, I mean, you talk about it all the time. Every day's a, every every day's day's a, a firefight. A firefight, yeah. Every day's a firefight for you, and you just take those same um, tools that made you successful in a gunfight, the, the calm, the work through it, the never quit, the keep your drive, um, and it's funny because when we talk on the phone and you're on the way home from work, it's like you're debriefing me on a patrol that went back. Right. Like, you wouldn't believe this motherfucker, you know, and here you're talking about some roughneck, you know, either oil field guy or uh, from, from your time at Slumberjay yeah. or, or you're talking about, you know. Some machine giving me issues somewhere. Yeah, yeah. doing mechanics on a machine giving you issues and, and, you, and you work it out. And, and that, I mean, that's a huge thing. It's a huge thing to say. I'm not going to let this define my life, but everything that I did leading up to it has defined my life and will continue to for the positive. And, um, and so that's great. But, uh, you got anything, anything to add on that? No, I'm good. You want to, uh, want to go ahead and wrap it? Yeah, I think we'll wrap this one right here. And like I said, guys, you see the guns in the background. We're going to do a, uh, podcast coming up here in a, just a few short episodes will be releasing. And it's going to be Harlan, the owner of the Louisiana yep. gun shop who, you know, at this point just really stepped out on a limb saying, I know you're not going to bring me a lot of business in the beginning. And you may be not ever, excuse me, you may be not ever bring me business. However, I believe in what you're doing and I believe in the cause of what you're doing enough. Even as somebody that doesn't serve, hadn't served in the military, he's a gun guy. He supplies guns to to the military guys down here in uh, Louisiana, just like he supplies them to everybody else. But He's also involved in explosives training for some of the roughneck crews that have to go out and drop demo charges down, and we're going to talk about Special all of that. Special crews uh, coming in for uh, the Hollywood productions or whatever. Explosive training for yep. that, yep. Uh, and then concealed carry licensing, um, that as well. Does any kind of AR build that you can think of, um, pistols, uh, laser engraving, and so we'll really get after it with him and talk about what he can offer. Also, um, I'll go ahead and say it now just to, just to preload you guys, but he is now up and running um, nationally uh, with a website, and you can build everything that you want to build right here at Harlan Shop via an online portal and then have it mailed to your FFL closest to your house and go and pick it up for a $20, $25, I think. Uh, oh, no, that's his. That's his. Whatever FFL is going to have, whatever. Uh, yeah, charge. but like, 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 especially in the Jacksonville area, I've had guns yep. sent to Semper Fi, I've had them sent to Stumpies, I've had them sent to multiple places, and it's about a twenty-five dollar transfer fee. That, you know, and and because they're trying to get your business to to furnish that thing. No, oh, for sure. But yeah. I have seen some FFLs even in this area that are like hundred dollars. I could believe that about this area. I just think that in the Lejeune area. Um, where a lot of our support comes from and is coming out of, I think that there are so many gun shops because 115,000 Marines across the street that they all kind of got to play by Johnny's rule. Right. Whichever Johnny is the highest, and they're not going higher than that, and whichever Johnny's the lowest, they're not going lower than that because you'll lose business. They're just going to go to the next shop. And so in my experience, at least in the Jacksonville area, a lot of these uh, transfer fees are $20, $25, something like that. So, um, that's good to know because you can be sitting up in Ohio. Uh, I know we got a fan base in Ohio started up early, North Carolina, Louisiana. You're in any one of these states you can get on, make this build custom all the way. Yep. And and then have it shipped to you in a matter of days. And uh, 
and really not have to do anything. You'll be supporting the podcast. You'll be supporting uh, Harlan's uh, Louisiana Gun Shop down here, and, and we would, we'd appreciate that. Uh, one last final note, just administrative. If you have not smashed that like button or that subscri- subscribe button on, on whatever platform you're following right now, be it Spotify, Breaker, Anchor, YouTube, uh, whatever you're listening to us on, it would help us and would go a long way algorithmically uh, to, to get those uh, you know those likes and those subscribes up because that's something that we can track analytic data on. And it's also uh, what goes into monetizing to start bringing um, bringing some money into the podcast and it's not that this money or it's not that this podcast is about money that's not actually what we're about at all but it does take a little bit of money for the equipment to and maintain travel. things and, and then the big thing is to travel to get these interviews done and uh, and so yeah so smash that like and uh, hit that subscribe button and we appreciate everybody's support and um, don't forget about the book don't forget about the writing yeah, contest. One more, one more plug here. This is, uh, if you haven't seen it, this is Lines of Marja. It's a book that I wrote about our 2010 deployment that we've been covering in the first three, four episodes of the, the uh, podcast here. And uh, available on Amazon.com for, I don't know what it is now, I think 17, 17, bucks, 17 bucks, something like that. Yep. Uh, if you're local to the Louisiana area, uh, the book is also being sold right here at the Louisiana Gun Shop in Broussard at... Uh, Harlan's location, you can pick one up here. Um, here, Amazon and Barnes uh, and Noble. You can order it through Barnes and Noble. It's a non-returnable book, so Barnes and Noble won't stock the shelves with them because then they feel like they'll be stuck with what doesn't sell. But um, and that's fine with me. Uh, I'm very confident, however, that if you take this book home and you crack it open, and uh, like I said, everything we're talking about is in way more detail in the book. Um, and 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 it'll be good. It'll be good, and I don't think you'll want to return it. Um, if you don't like reading, this podcast is for you because we're going to cover the book, and then it's going to be straight interview-style uh, podcasting, a conduit for information passing for the veteran community at large, and then you know everybody else as well. You don't want to think that this is just for veterans because there's a wealth of information that's going to come out of this podcast and already has come out of this podcast, either for the warfighter uh, contractor that's still going downrange or for the everyday citizen that, uh, you know, that wants to know. Uh, questions are going to be answered on this podcast, and things are going to be talked about on this podcast that you were told not to ask about when you were uh, when you were growing up, and that's something that we mean to change because the talking is good. Uh, I went a period of years in the bottom of an alcohol bottle and uh, purpose, purposeless, you know, after being uh, retired out, and... Uh, and that was the hardest time of my life. So now having something else to focus on, bringing that help to other people, and and really being an advocate for getting out there and talking. Um, in World War II and Vietnam, the guy, and maybe not Vietnam, but World War One, World War Two, these guys sat on a ship and they talked about this stuff on the way home before they split their separate ways. And now it's like you're, you know, you're a 24-hour plane fight from coming home, and then, you know, your unit being disintegrated and going its separate ways, and and so. I'm not saying that's a mistake, but I am saying that it took a lot of the talking out of it uh, for people that were like-minded and in the same situations, you know, and uh, and there's something to be said about that. So anyway, we're going to leave it right there for tonight, guys. Uh, it's been a long one. It's been uh, it's been fun. It's been real. And if you don't have anything to add, man, I think we'll kick it off right there and uh, we'll, we'll let this uh, advertisement reel run. And if you guys uh, have any questions about what Harlan offers, it's going to be 
you know, at the end of the episode during the advertisement run. And um, feel free to email choicesnotchancespodcast at gmail.com. How we doing, everybody? This is the co-host of Choices Not Chances Podcast, Matthew Charette. As mentioned in the beginning of the show, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. The folks at Louisiana Gun Shop have been a longtime supplier of firearms and shooting supplies and services, as well as very good friends of mine. One day, we will get the owner and founder, Harlan Boblet, on the show. At Louisiana Gun Shop, the sky is the limit when it comes to getting the firearms and accessories you want for your current or future firearms. They have a nice selection of handguns, rifles, and shotguns in stock or can order just about any firearm you could want or need. They specialize in concealed carry handguns and custom AR-15 builds. In addition to firearms, they also carry ammo, suppressors, optics, and a wide variety of gun parts for the upgrade and maintenance of your firearms. If you want to get further into the upgrade side of things, they provide customization services such as Cerakote, laser engraving, and Kydex holsters. So like I stated before, Louisiana Gun Shop is located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. It used to be Louisiana Gun Shop did not have an online presence. But now I am happy to announce that their website is up and ready for business for online sales to all 50 states at louisianagunshop.com. Louisiana Gun Shop also offers Louisiana residents concealed carry classes for a very reasonable price. Harlan's experience in the concealed carry space when it comes to the laws and the do's and the don'ts is pivotal in attaining your Louisiana concealed carry license. As well as the firearm market, Harlan also conducts explosive training for Louisiana blasters licenses for oil field and special effects workers in Louisiana. Workers in these fields from out of state will also need to have their training in this field to complete their work in Louisiana. So whether you need a firearm, upgrade your old firearm, targets and ammo for a range day, or you just like to talk to people who support the Second Amendment, Louisiana Gun Shop is your place, either in person or online. Remember, they are located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette, or online at louisianagunshop.com. You can also follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Louisiana Gun Shop. A special thanks to Harlan and Jenny at Louisiana Gun Shop for sponsoring the show. Please support them so they can support us and keep the podcast free for all. Thanks. Have a great day. Semper Fi and God bless America. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's plenty. Yeah. Yeah.